You're listening to Fathoms, an Enneagram podcast, discovering our inner depths, one fathom at a time. Well, welcome back, Jason Adam Miller, to Fathoms, an Enneagram podcast. Man, we're excited to have you. Um, how does it feel to be our first official returning guest? Oh, I didn't know that. Um, very, yeah. very flattering. I'm honored. Yes. <laughs> so any new things in your life since we've heard from you last? Not that I can think of. It's COVID. <laughs> <laughs> Still. I, I asked for a potted plant for Christmas. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You have a, a few more gray hairs. Hey, Creek, you know, uh, we don't need to bring that in here. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is this recording is coming out uh, the day before Christmas. So what are you hoping to get tomorrow? Uh, potted plants. I, I asked my mom for potted plants. <laughs> oh, my, my mom, that's really I'm what 30, you asked for. I'm 38 and my mom still wants my Christmas list. And so I asked for <laughs> potted plants. Oh, that sounds like her. Right, I yeah. love that. So uh, in recent conversation with you, you've brought up this idea of addressing Advent as sort of welcoming God, welcoming the divine in our lives, but also what, what gets in the way of, of our welcoming. Yeah, we'd, we'd just love it if you could sort of expound on this this idea that you've got. Yeah, so as background, uh, Advent is this season that the, the, the Christian tradition has named for a while now. And if, if you sort of poke around in the ways that Christians use this time, often you'll discover that there's what they kind of call the three Advents or the three arrivals. And so there's the, the one that we celebrate from 2,000 years ago when we tell the Jesus story and have the nativity and all that. And then it's also quite traditional for Christians to use this season to think about Christian expectation for the future and what's sort of called like an eschatology or like th- this thing that we long for in the future about God arriving and kind of putting things back together. But then there's the third advent between those two, which is the advent of God in our lives today. In this tradition, one of the ways that you kind of use that advent from 2000 years ago and the advent that Christians wait for in the future you, you kind of use those to then understand how it is that we have a pattern of welcoming God in the here and now. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Which, and then it's to say that like the re, the things, the ways that we reflect on the Christmas story, it's sort of deep in the tradition to remember and celebrate that this thing happened. But um, a teacher I love often says like, it's true, not just because it happened, but because it happens. Mm-hmm. And so there are these patterns that we can learn from and think about how we experience them, right? Jay, I think so many of us that have, have grown up in the Christian church, we think of Advent or arrival as these really, really big, majestical, magical moments. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that's always the case. Can you, would you mind speaking yeah. on that a little bit? Yeah, that's the thing, right? A friend of mine in our church, Scott Erickson, he's kind of working on that right now. Like we, like incarnation is... It's if you really kind of get back to it, it seems like it's it's almost designed to locate God in the mundane. And it's funny, like we even do this with the incarnation story. So like the actual story is that an unwed woman is pregnant in the first century. I, you know, like like even today, there's stigma around you know bearing a child out of wedlock, especially in religious communities. Go back mm-hmm. two thousand years. Oh my goodness! And we'll get into this further when we. There's more there, but um, you know, like the whole story seems like it's all it's all about God um, meeting us in the mundane, and incarnation is, you know, kind of all about that. Scott's got this great, uh, um, he's on my mind because our church is working with his artwork right now. He's got this great Christmas image, and it's a baby having its butt wiped, 
<laughs> and I, I forget, I think he's got like a little, I think it's like Mighty God. And so like the hand that's like wiping the butt has this little banner over it that says Mighty. <laughs> and then the other, the eyes of the baby says God. And I think that's quite right, you know? And a lot mm. of our nostalgia and ornamentation around this season, um, it's not all bad or anything, but it's beautiful if the impulse is that the ornamentation of the mundane reminds us that the mundane is sacred. And it's mm-hmm. tragic if it actually sort of like strips out the mundane from the story. We think of God as this grand, majestic arrival, this big thing. And and I mean, you're speaking to the mundanity of that, um, that it shows up in the everyday life. But why, why is that even important to us? Why is the re- arrival of God? Why is that something for us to pay attention to? So what comes to my mind is that um, there's like an ontological reality and experiential reality. And what I mean by that is like ontologically or objectively, like I don't think God is some faraway place and then and then he like moves proximate to us, like he comes mm-hmm. toward us. I don't think that's true like objectively, but I do think it's, it's the, the way we live our lives, like to narrate our subjective experience is to say that, man, God felt far away and, mm-hmm. and then something happened or something shifted and then God felt close. And I think, you know, the, the theological reflection is to discover that God was never the one who was distant. It was us. And mm-hmm. that to be holy is to be present to the presence of God. Mm-hmm. You know, so like we kind of move toward God or we, or we consent to that presence, mm-hmm. which was always there, but would never like batter down the door. So we experience it as an arrival. And I, I'm, I'm really a big fan of like holding the, both of those, mm-hmm. you know, like mm-hmm. we can tell the story and, and say, God was never far. And we can also, I think, truthfully tell the story and say God arrived because that's so often what it feels like to be human. You know, the interesting thing about arrival is we also have to show up in order to experience the arrival. Yes. In what ways do you see uh, in the scriptures or in the, in the story of Christmas uh, ways in which people were showing up to the arrival of God that was already happening? Yeah, yeah. So, so I think the center one, and I, I want to just name it before I move on from it, because I think it's really important to name it, is Mary. And the reason I think that's important is just like at the resurrection, in the incarnation, it's a woman who's kind of the primary agent. And so I, I just want to like call that out. That's beautiful. Mm. But the thing that I've been ruminating on for a couple of years now is another character in the story. And it's really personal for me. And so maybe like we'll work the text for a moment uh, and I'll tell you why it matters to me. But then I think I would love to hear from you guys because I, I, so I have a theory about what's going on in the text and I, I, and then I have a theory about my theory and my, my theory about my theory is that <laughs> it's, it's like, dangerous. <laughs> is that it is it, that it's conversant with the Enneagram. Mm-hmm. So let me, let me pitch mm-hmm. my theory and then I want to hear from you guys um, in your Enneagram training. Cause I, I think my theory is conversant with the theory that you guys are experts in. So, so how's that yeah. sound? Yeah, I can't wait. The, okay, good. The three magi, they they brought the symbol. <laughs> yes. I don't know if you heard that. It's, yeah. That's well, it. people do <laughs> think that the Enneagram is pagan astrology and the magi were pagan <laughs> astrologers. So there you oh, go. Oh, boy. Lots to unpack there. <laughs> so many places to go there and moving on. <laughs> oh, man. So here's my theory. Um, and it has to do with Joseph. Uh, So in Matthew chapter one, verses 18 through 20, you know, Luke is the Christmas story that's kind of the most fleshed out that people are familiar with, but Matthew has a bit of it. And so this is the first gospel in the New Testament. And, you know, the gospels are the four tellings of Jesus's life. Sorry, hold on. I'm trying to find that page number. Do you know what that's on? 
Yeah. I, I, uh, I can't, I can't sorry, help you. Sorry to interrupt. I just want to follow along and read, read from here. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, it's on your phone. Google, Google it. Google knows Google what page it. number it's on. Okay, sorry. Old so school. Matthew 1, 18 through 20. So what we read there is, so Mary is pledged to marry to Joseph. So, so Mary and Joseph are fiancés. And then the text says, before they came together, and of course the text is referring to sexual union when it says that, she's found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. And then we read that, that Joseph was a righteous man. And so he, he didn't want to disgrace Mary. So he had in mind that he would kind of quietly send her away. So when the text says that Joseph was a righteous man, that's, that's a, sort of a category of person in the first century. And it means that Joseph had a reputation for always doing what the law required or the Torah. And so there's this whole righteousness code that a first century Jewish man is held to. And it, and it goes back to the earliest pages of scripture. And what's interesting is there's a very clear prescription for what you do if you're engaged to a woman and she's found to have been sexually unfaithful before the marriage. And you can find it back in the, in the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures in Deuteronomy 22. So, so Joseph, again, he is known publicly as a man who does whatever the law requires. And Mary has this very public problem. It may not be public in the first trimester, but it's going to be very public, right? Mm-hmm. And so the law requires that if, uh, if you're engaged to a woman who has, is found to have not been chaste until marriage, you are, you are told in the law that you need to kind of deliver her up to the village elders or to her father, and she's to be stoned to death. Wow. Yeah. And by the way, um, we could do another thing about the, the sort of cultural misogyny that's baked into that. For today, we're just living inside the Matthew story, and Joseph has a problem on his hands, right? Um, so, so he's got a choice to make, and he decides not to divorce her quietly, send her away, but to stick with her. This passage for me became really important a couple of years ago because I, I, I was at a point in, in my work where I needed to publicly clarify some of my beliefs, and doing so was going to require me to forsake my reputation for righteousness among a certain uh, mm. religious group. Mm. And I, I really believed and, and I believe that I, that I was trying to respond to what I understood and, and understand that like the spirit was doing, like what God was doing and is doing. But there was a fork in the road. You know, I can go one direction and maintain my reputation for a certain kind of righteousness. But in, but in doing so, I would have to forsake what, what I actually believe God is doing. And I could go the direction of what I believe God is doing and forsake my reputation for righteousness. So, so this became really personal for me, hmm. um, and Joseph became a bit of a hero of mine. M- Mary's clearly the primary hero here, uh, but I really related to Joseph's conundrum. So that became that became personal. But but then I thought about it a little bit further, and to be honest, that that was a, a moment in time where like I had to kind of relinquish how good it felt to be perceived as a, a righteous person. And by the way, uh, righteousness codes exist everywhere, right? So every, yeah. every group has righteousness codes or virtue codes. Um, religious groups have them. Secular groups have them. Conservative yeah. groups have them. Liberal groups have them. CrossFit you know, gyms. CrossFit gyms have them. Uh, <laughs> vegans have them, right? Like, like go right. on and on, right? Like most sort of uh, thick social groups, thick meaning tightly connected, they tend to have codes of righteousness. And so yours may not be conventionally religious, but man, like I think a lot of us can relate to like you're part of a group and the group has a sort of implicit definition of 
what it is to right. be good and what it is to not be good. Mm-hmm. And so Joseph has to go through that. But the the bigger thing for me was I like for Joseph to be a righteous man, that's both a history of personal behavior and it's a reputation that he's gained. Right. And I think even further, it's 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 probably like a performative identity. Mm-hmm. Right? Like I like he plays the part of the righteous man, and that's how he fits in. And that's how yeah. he knows he's gonna be okay. And that's how he knows the group is gonna respect him. And if we start talking about what are the things that you perform to make sure that you're going to be okay, now I feel like we are starting to, to have a conversation with the Enneagram. Mm-hmm. And um, it may not be that like being a moral person is the way that somebody, you know, performs. But man, I, I, I bet all of us have sort of performative identities, you know, like I'm, so mm-hmm. like for me, so speaking as Jason, like for me, a lot of my energy can get wrapped in. Like I want people to think that I'm intelligent and I'm unique. And it doesn't take an Enneagram expert to know that that's like five, four wing, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, I really like, I, I, I find myself performing that I'm informed and that I'm a little bit artistic, you know? If this story, if the Advent story is not just because it happened, but because it's instructive for anybody who's looking to become present to God and to sort of like welcome the light, um, then I think we could have a whole conversation about whether the Advent story is inviting us to sort of drop these performative identities or surrender them so that we can be present to the Spirit, you know, the way that Joseph was present to what the Spirit was birthing in Mary. So that's my theory. Yeah. And I'd love to hear from you guys uh, like, like, like how that sounds to you and then how the Enneagram might be in conversation with it. I think we may have a few theories about your theories theory, <laughs> theoretically. Good. Good. Oh, Good. I, indeed we do. Yes. No, I think that's that's a profound insight on the story of Joseph, not only because it happened, but because it, it, it should happen or be happening to all of us. You know, this mm-hmm. this is kind of the, the Enneagram work is, mm-hmm. is uh, not letting the ego always have the final say and cause us to kind of put on these personas, right? This is the dying to the self. I think that it, that scripture talks about in other places, right? And yeah, it's, that's, it's exemplified well in, in the story of Joseph here. During yeah. Another word that comes season. to mind for people with Bible language, uh, the flesh comes to mind. Mm-hmm. Like in, in Paul's letters, I think what he's doing with the flesh and the spirit is similar, you know, uh, flesh, ego, all that stuff versus, dying to those things so that we can actually kind of be alive to to yeah. god right now yeah so, so here's my theory or here's my question if, if this is if this if this kind of works i i kind of wondered what you guys would say for each location on the enneagram mm-hmm. and whether there's sort of a version of this that you can kind of describe for people showing up in each of those numbers yeah i think the the easiest place to start would be to just take i mean take joseph and and i mean seemingly that sort of morality that that wanting to be to appear righteous yes has a lot of one qualities to it yeah um yep and i think so like there's that performative identity of that and, and then but then he had to realize he had to choose um well he had to realize that sometimes doing the thing that is right is not always necessarily the best thing yeah yep and sometimes you have to choose um, and and there's, depending on how you define these words, it can go either way. But basically, sometimes you have to make decisions that appear to be not right, but are actually the most rightest. 
Yeah, um, that's, and that, that's, and that, I like yeah. that. Yeah, and it doesn't, and it doesn't affect. I like that. And, and this is, I mean, this is the enneagram. It doesn't affect your inherent uh, integrity or goodness or value. Um, yes, just because you make a decision that is unpopular, that is seeming to be um, evil or unrighteous or or something like that, you you have to go with what you feel is the thing that you must do to bring yourself closer. Uh, to God and to and to discover mm-hmm. um, the divine within yourself. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and so I, I mean, I guess that would be a, a quick unpacking with one. I mean, Abram, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah. I mean, I would just say that real integrity includes admitting when you're wrong, and that's sort of the thing that that uh, Type One avoids the most. Right. Mm. Um, being wrong and being incorrect, and so it, real yeah. integrity doesn't avoid. Uh, making mistakes it's it's uh it's it's actually kind of what we're talking about you know as we're letting go of this performative identity it would include sort of practicing what it is we tend to avoid and i think that's actually how we welcome god Mm -hmm. through the spirit so i think the type one is is actually figuring out how to be okay with making mistakes and then in that after you make a mistake and you maybe take a couple deep breaths you find out Huh, my integrity is still intact. I didn't lose it because this isn't yeah. about me manufacturing this thing. It's it's about recognizing it's it's still here even when I do the thing, you know, that I thought was going to counteract mm-hmm. it or make it go away or whatever, you know. And I think before we before we go on to the to the other numbers, I think we can maybe we can uh, like three things in each number, right? You have the performative identity of each number, then you have the thing that we're trying to avoid because we're scared that if we if we believe that we're not going to get the thing that we think we want and then and then Tom Condon talks about this thing called going beyond where it's it's uh, kind of reaching into the darkness and trusting that the thing you're looking for is actually there mm. and yep. and that is that aspect of of spirit of of allowing god to show up to arrive it's trusting that whatever you're looking for is actually still there. And, and what, if, what if you responded out of that place, out of that place of fullness, of abundance instead of scarcity, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. So maybe we just hit those three things for each of the numbers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the performative identity for the two then, right, would be I am helpful. I am nurturing. I'm just a helpful person, right? That's what I do mm-hmm. as, as that kind of naturally helping personality, right? If their performative identity is as a helpful and nurturing kind of person, if that's what drives them in their world, uh, then perhaps maybe the thing that they avoid that they need to accept is their own neediness Mm -hmm. and their own need for the love that they often are so willing to give others and are maybe afraid that they won't get themselves or don't deserve themselves. And that neediness when they realize and are willing to acknowledge it, then maybe they can, that aspect of spirit, you know, that going beyond in kind of reaching into the dark and hoping that it's there is that they are inherently lovable, right? That they are worthy of being loved for who they are, not just for, you know, the acts of service that they provide, right? I have so many twos in my life where I just, I see them trying so hard to be lovable and it mm. i mean on some levels it it grieves my soul to watch this performative aspect just kind of keep manifesting itself over and over again i'm just like just stop 
Right. But I mean, every number does it on some level, and it's and it's painful to observe at any level. But yeah. um, I love actually yeah. that we talked about earlier on uh, um, just this idea of God that is always present, but is sort of based on our perception of God being present, whether whether we're tuned into it or not. And I actually think that's kind of what, what we're going to be addressing with each one of these numbers is my ability to be present to God here uh, and and sort of staying grounded in this this capacity to be motivated by love and something deeper mm-hmm. than me yeah. and trust, trusting in something that I'm connected to that I'm not separate from. And that is the place from where we'll be sort of more connected to uh, this inherent, this whatever this specific quality is for me to the types like you just named. Uh, yeah. This is capacity for love, knowing I'm loved. Or I have to force it, right? I have to manufacture right, right. it. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. it doesn't seem so blatantly performative to the person performing. <laughs> but, it, but it is more evident to others, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Especially people who know know that person well. Obviously, the, you know, the type three being known as the achiever, uh, you know, our performative identity is definitely in this realm of success and efficiency, the things that we can do are often those things that make us appear to be successful or efficient or often both if we can get away with mm-hmm. it. But th- what this means then is uh, that we often are unwilling to even go near that which we avoid, <laughs> which is failure or mediocrity, right? Failure, it truly is not an option to the three. In fact, in times that we failed, we've just reframed them, <laughs> you know, and, and mm-hmm. don't, uh, don't even consider them failures or we've forgotten about them. Or mediocrity is terrifying to a three because we are so desperate to feel valuable. And, but if we're willing to accept that our own failures and our own kind of mundaneness are part of who we are, perhaps then we can kind of go beyond and reach into what seems like a void and find that inherent value that we've been, you know, trying to manufacture or Mm. produce or create to impress others all of our lives and Mm. instead rest in the fact that it's been there all along. Right. Real quick, Miller, did you fall asleep? Are you still with us? (laughs) I'm here. I'm loving it. I'm I'm taking notes. Literally, Literally, I'm taking notes. Great. Okay. Yeah. So the type four, right? Performative identity, unique, special, and and weirdly, um, it is that we are lacking. And you um, like on some it. level? <laughs> I do. I like that I suck. Um, get oh. over it. <laughs> so complicated. Yeah. It it is. It is. Um, no, but it's. I mean, I won't. We won't go into it too much. But that is. I mean, that is the the thing. Is I'm I'm so. The, the type four of me is so afraid that I am not unique or special enough to be noticed, to be seen, to be mirrored back to. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's this constant, I call it my ghost. And I don't, I'm, I'm sure I've said this on the podcast before. I don't remember. But like it is, it is this crafting of an image that is not me. And you will interact with my ghost, but you will never interact with me. Because I perceive, and it's the thing that I consistently avoid is just the mundane, the ordinary, the the things that will just make everyone just pass me by because I feel like I'm passable. And and that is that in that in the very simplicity, in the <laughs> wiping of the baby's butt, mm-hmm. like in the mundanity, it's that is where actually um when I engage that, when I when I step into that and feel that, hey, I'm still I'm still here. I'm still 
whole. I'm still complete. I'm still not lacking anything. Um, even though nothing, even though the external is not matching what I expect, uh, what my internal expects the external to be, if that makes sense. Yeah. So yeah, it's stepping into the, the inherent depth and originality and wholeness for that type four. Yeah. So uh, type five, <laughs> Jay, you want to just take a stab at it? Ooh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'd love to hear Jay take a stab at this. Yeah. What's your performative identity? Yeah. I mean, um, you kind of mentioned it briefly right? mm-hmm. already. Yeah, I did. I, and I, when I mentioned, and I'm, I was referring to my five and my four wing, uh, mm-hmm. cause they're yeah. at war in me. Um, so when I said like, yeah, I'm not often actually trying to like perform, you know, moral righteousness. It's more like I want to be perceived as intelligent and unique or wise and artistic. I think the intelligence or like knowing stuff, the, the, the deeper thing really is just like being competent. Like mm-hmm. I got my wits about me. I know how to navigate the world. Mm-hmm. I think that's, it's like, it, first of all, it feels like survival. And then mm-hmm. secondarily, it feels like I need everybody else to know I'm surviving this way, you know? Except yeah. like accepting what you avoid. Yeah. What is the thing that you yeah, avoid? that's right. Like yeah. accepting being incompetent or, um, or like not having enough energy or like showing mm-hmm. up, um, without yeah. enough to give. That's mm-hmm. a really big deal. Scarcity, right? Scarcity is a big deal. Yep. That's right. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. I think it's like settling down into like not having to like earn or perform any kind of like knowledge, but just trusting that if I settle down into what I really am and who I really am, that there will, that there will be the wisdom that I need and that I can use to serve others, mm-hmm. but you don't have to like uh, manufacture it. You know, you just yeah. kind of like settle down into it and it'll be there when it, when it's needed or called for. Yeah. So it's almost like inherent wisdom that you feel when you when you let go of that scarcity of I don't have enough knowledge, I don't have enough whatever, when you let go of that, you find that the inherent wisdom arises. Yeah, I think that's right. Mm. It kind of comes to mm. the surface. Because yeah. five strike me as being really good at cultivating wisdom, you know, through all their kind of knowledge and understanding work that they do. What maybe they struggle with a little bit more is the gift of wisdom, right? The divine mm-hmm. gift of wisdom. Because that's not really something that you can earn right or yeah necessarily yeah, I think that's right. cultivate your way into yes i think that's yeah. right yeah and then and then you want lots of credit for all the work you've done yeah <laughs> you know can i just say that i you know i actually do see that in in you uh jason uh i forget who i heard this from wisdom is knowledge applied compassionately and oh. and where does that word compassion oh, come from to suffer with and so it's to actually suffer, have an open yeah. heart it's to yeah. have emotions your head and your heart connected and that is where where wisdom comes from i think it's Mm -hmm. cynthia bourgeau that says wisdom isn't knowing more it's knowing with more of you oh and that's that is i think i think the beauty of a healthy five is when they are using their head and their heart at the same time and uh, yeah it's it's i don't mean sorry it's it's not using your knowledge as armor yeah Mm -hmm. yeah but It's, it's letting it be of service when you when you drop your armor Yes. Yeah. 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 It's generous yeah. generosity. Yep. Yeah. Kind of to piggyback on what you were just saying, Seth, I was thinking and been writing through this concept of suffering is the discomfort of waking up. Mm. And what you're just saying of, of that compassion piece and, and compassion is very uncomfortable. Compassion re- requires you to, yeah, go to the thing that you avoid mm-hmm. to, yep. um, to pause 
the ways that you have always survived. And that pausing, that's dangerous. I mean, you think if there's a lion in the bush, right? That pause is the most dangerous moment because you are, you're not moving. But that's also the moment when you can actually clarify, is there a lion in the bush or is it a bunny rabbit? Yeah, yeah, that's good, that's good, yep. we name the the performative identity for type six, you know, we're kind of using this idea in the Enneagram terms of what's called your idealized self-image. And this is the thing that we think we have to be in the world in order to be safe and secure that we learned worked best for us growing up, you know? So the people that lead with type six, uh, they're their their performative identity is about being loyal. It's about being prepared and uh, sort of being you know, they're sometimes called the, the compl- a compliant type, but it's sort of this compliance uh, and dutifulness towards doing it, it, in a similar way to the, the what ones do, but doing what is uh, expected of me so that I feel safe and secure with safe and secure and aligned with the people that are giving me my safety because the six is the one that's sort of looking to other people to know if they can trust themselves because they don't. So, yeah, so it's this uh, this idealized self-image of I have to be loyal. I am loyal. I am prepared. And so why, why is this is the question I think too, that we, we could, we could be asking. It's because they're looking for security. They're looking for certainty and they want to feel mentally safe and secure. And so what, what do they do is they have, they have to avoid uncertainty. You know, they have, it's kind of this, this opposite, this polarity thing going on with each of the types, but they avoid instability and uncertainty and, and actually kind of trusting themselves because if I trust myself, well, I, I just have way too many, too, way too much information coming in that I could I question. I could be wrong. Yeah, I could be wrong. How, yeah. how could, definitely. And so it's this aspect of spirit that when I can practice, the opposite of doubt is not uh, faith, it's certainty. And mm-hmm. and so the six, you know, when they can practice this this idea of like, I don't have to know all the answers and I don't have to have called all my people to confirm what I already know. I can step into this with my own authority, and uh, like we, like I addressed before, like this this thing that's deeper than uh, the surface. Uh, I can practice this trust of of uh, in, in inerrant courage, in confidence that I can have. You know, this is the gift of the six is is uh, courage, which is which is not about like waiting until the thing I'm afraid of is gone, but it's going for it anyway. It's it's acknowledging fear. It's not like running away from it. Or charging mm-hmm. at it or re- in a react- reactivity, reactivity. What's the word? <laughs> in a reactive way. <laughs> um, yeah. So the seven is they're uh, often called the enthusiast, or um, I'm forgetting in the other some of the other names, but um, the epicure. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> That's an old one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Their performative identity is is I I am excited i oh and i actually wanted to name this too usually when you look at so where some of these words are coming from from some of the uh you know seminal authors as these are called uh, idealized self-image all of them start with the two words i am which is what the ego is i i am this and which means i am not that you know we're talking about what i am and what i have to avoid in order to keep being who i think i am but the idea was the idea is that this is about the I am, if you will, the I am in mm. us, or our way of manufacturing the I am on our own strength. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I just I just found that really fascinating that you know these are kind That's of good. I am lo- uh, uh, excited. Like lowercase I am. Yeah, yeah, lowercase yeah. I am happy. I am opportunistic. Uh, and I, I have to be okay, you know, I, yeah. I, mm-hmm. yeah. So that's, that's, that's kind of the sevens, uh, performative identity, but yeah, they're, they're, they're in pursuit of trying to, uh, this, this sort of abundance and this sort of more and more and more and more and more is better, better than a sort of one thing at one time, you know? And so they, they have to, they, what they have to accept or what they can accept <laughs> what's the thing? What's the phrase that we have here? Accept <laughs> what we avoid. Yeah, accept what, what we. What they need to accept. Yeah, accept what we avoid. They need, what they need to, to accept. Do. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Is is actually um, this emotional, this emo- being trapped in emotional pain? That's the thing here. Is is sevens feel as though uh, if they stay for a moment, they'll be trapped. They'll they'll get stuck with boredom and disappointment. And, and that is sort of the opposite of what's actually true, you know? Uh, so this sort mm-hmm. of aspect of spirit, when I can practice this deep trust of knowing that I'm actually not a solo wave off doing my own thing, but a wave a part of the ocean, you know, when I can practice this deep trust, I can find out that this inherent freedom I'm after when I'm trying to move from one thing to the next thing to the next thing, the way that I'm trying to manufacture that is actually already present within, you know, this mm-hmm. sort of this idea of that we've been talking about that the mundane isn't actually mundane if I can see it for what it is, if I have the mm-hmm. capacity to stay. And so that's the aspect of spirit, you know, when they can practice staying and sort of move through this this uh, this cave, this dark cave, and come out on the other side to find out, oh, there's satisfaction here, there's joy, there's abundance, there's freedom. Yeah, that's the seven. Mm-hmm. Just to harken back to a, a previous episode with Leslie Hirschberger, who herself is a seven, she talks about that there is no, it's not that you have to practice finding your your freedom, your joy, your abundance. It is, it's what, it is what naturally arises when you embrace the thing that you're avoiding, when yeah. you're embracing the potential suffering, the potential thing that makes you feel unsafe or in pain. And that that uh that quality that you're looking for will arise naturally if you're able to recognize when your type pattern is starting to rev up and and to pause and be able to do the thing that we talked about earlier of going beyond of like wait a second what if the thing that i'm looking for here is actually already here and how would i react accordingly so anyways moving on to type eight drew why don't you take that type eight all right so, uh, you know, type eights, they're typically known as the challenger, right? Uh, because their performative identity is most commonly, it's, it's really strong, it's powerful, it's energetically intense, just a, a lot of kind of energy and electricity seems to kind of come out of their beans wh- whenever they're in the room, they tend to make their presence known. And often... That's kind of a countermeasure to what they uh, really want to avoid, which is weakness or vulnerability. And so um, it's really hard for them to accept weakness and vulnerability because it feels like a threat, right? Because it feels like it leaves them without protection. And so this aspect of spirit that they need to kind of, you know, go beyond into uh, is that they have this inherent strength and power that they that they don't always have to kind of power pose their way through life. 
but mm-hmm. instead they could kind of rest in an inherent strength and power that itself is protective, right? And still acknowledges that, you know, there is weakness in our world, but there is inherent strength and power that can, it doesn't have to be manufactured all the time. Mm. And they can kind of maybe unclench their fists a little bit and reside in that. All right. So (sighs) type nine. No, no, this is, this is the best one. Saved it for last. Come on. All right. Type nine. So, this uh, performative identity or idealized self-image, uh, this is all about being settled, <laughs> if you will. It's this, this uh, mm. placidity, being comfortable, and and uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's just this 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 peace, this peacefulness, you know, um, not not uh, stirring the waves or or uh, shaking the boat if you will uh, is that the phrase i don't know shaking the boat rocking the boat i always mess i suppose up. you wouldn't want to shake it either i don't <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, little, i was talking yeah. about little boats you know that you can yeah. put down the yeah anyway um, yeah so so that's that's kind of this performative identity for the for the nine. It's sort of this I'm not significant, actually, because to be significant would be disruptive. Um, and so what they tend to avoid this this thing they have to accept is actually conflict. Uh, and I was talking to Creek before we started this thing. Uh, that's a uh, it's one thing to say conflict, but to, to expound on it a little bit because you're talking to to the guy who does the nine thing first and foremost. It's conflict when I feel it, but it's also actually about, I don't want you to feel conflict. And often it's even more so about that. This, uh, where my focus of attention is on is on other people's agendas, you know, and, and other people's things. It's, it's so much about, it's, it's a level of codependency. Like I'm only settled if you're settled. So it's not just me. It's also you. Yeah. It includes both. So it's it's I, I always like to say conflict is one thing. It, it sounds like this big massive thing, but I actually like the word disruption better because it's it is about placidity, placidity. And uh, so yeah, the the aspect of spirit then is not the imitation of it's not the it's not it's not avoidance, which is what what we're kind of talking about here of conflict. It's uh it's it's harmony and unity and wholeness, which actually inc- includes disruption you have to have some level of maintaining uniqueness and diversity in order to have wholeness you have to have nine separate parts if you will in order to have Mm. the whole and so you have to speak up for all of them and that's what this the nine sort of represents this uh this aspect of spirit of uh being engaged having an engaged heart and not avoidant one yeah that's uh that's sort of the nine if you will yeah so i'm curious miller did that work? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's really helpful. So I, I wrote down over here, another story came to mind. By the way, when I'm with you guys on the podcast, I actually don't really know if you how you think about your audience and whether, I don't know how many of your listeners, you know, kind of feel an identification with Christian tradition, but that's where I'm speaking from. So I don't mean to bring it up to like put it on everyone. And yet, uh, I, like the other thing I, I keep thinking of is, the story that Jesus tells about the two sons and mm-hmm. the father who's really generous. And so this is often called the, the parable of the prodigal son, but he tells a story about 
a father with two sons and one son is really irreverent and rebellious and asks for his inheritance, which is a way of saying, I wish you were dead. And the father surprisingly go ahead, goes ahead and gives the, the son his inheritance. So he, he runs off and lives this very extravagant life and then spends all of his money and then ends up poor and, and living this very disgraced life and then comes back to the father and, and receives this great welcome. So that that's great. But the other part of the story is the older brother. I, like By the way, this is like the first time I'm thinking of this in, in quite these terms. But mm. as you guys were talking, the older brother is the one who stayed home and did all the right things. And when the father welcomes the younger brother, he throws a big party, like a big dinner party for the son. Oh, man. And at the end of the story, the older brother is on the outside of the party looking in. And the father comes to the older brother and they have this conversation and the older brother's kind of bitter. And essentially the, old, the, the older brother says, like, I did all the things that you wanted me to do. Which is like performative identity again, right? Yeah. And then the father says, oh, don't you know that you were always with me and all I have is yours? Hmm. Woo! Right? <laughs> Which is presence and abundance. Yeah. But at the end of the story, the older brother is the one on the outside looking in on fellowship with the father. Mm-hmm. Like that's the the story doesn't end with a happy ending for the older brother. The story oh, ends with a question, right. which is like, will that older brother like relinquish the 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 way that like he's like? I, but I I did the I did the things I was supposed to do, and I, I feel like everything you guys just described all the way around the circle with each number, right? It's like, but I did the thing that was supposed to guarantee for me a welcome in this circle of belonging mm. with God. And it's his sort of fixation with his performative identity that keeps him on the outside looking in. And it's the younger son who's been disabused of any notion that he could live up, mm-hmm. who finds himself feasting at the table. And like, like I'm, this is honestly kind of a real time realization for me, like that there's a real resonance between those two stories. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and right? it's an Advent story in the way in which you've talked about Advent. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yes, that's right. Yeah, because it's about welcoming. It's been about being present to the presence of God, and, and the father figure is the God figure, and the older son did everything right, but the older son's the one who's not at the table with the father. You know, mm-hmm. And Joseph could have kind of stuck to his script mm-hmm. as a righteous man, but then he wouldn't have been there in the manger as God is birthed you know, in the incarnation. Yeah, I, I just like... Hmm. I think, um, and by the way, it's funny. Like, I won't, I won't get into the details, but I had an incident uh, four hours ago with, with somebody in my life, and a thing bugged me. And then I, I was very frustratingly confronted with how much it was exactly an example of what we were talking about right now, <laughs> and how I needed to drop my performative identity in favor of relationship. And hey, I'm sorry. Okay, <laughs> I'm sorry. I said what I said. Oh, <laughs> you had Not to do it on game. Not yeah. Naming names. Yeah, but like uh, all of these become barriers to relationship, don't they? Yeah. Um, whether it's with God or with one another, and this whole incarnation story seems to be about like this great unity, this great union, mm. you know, this great merging of yeah. the divine and the human, and um, and then and then the things that we have to say no to, and the things we say yes to, yeah, to yeah. to be a part of the story. I even think of, I mean, the the prodigal son side. He like he felt like he needed to crawl back. He needed to yeah, grovel right. in yep. front of his dad, and and we do that. But that's that's just another performative identity, and that's yep. the flip side of like this this righteousness. This sure. is <laughs> on some level this 
Mm, he's kind of representing the four of like, maybe if mm. I'm just crappy enough, then he'll have pity on me and I'll just get the lowly scraps and at least I'll be seen. At least, but that's still a performative identity that's still not reaching out and trusting the thing that's already yours. Yeah. 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 Um, and so I guess in light of that, this may seem like a rather strange topic to uh, release on Christmas Eve. So I guess in my mind, and, and please, if any of you have any uh, anything to add to this, feel free to. But um, I, at least for me, this, this conversation has really been about, um, I mean, as we, as we finish out this season of, of celebrating the arrival of the divine to the world, like, may you, listeners, celebrate the discovery of the divine aspects within yourself. There it is. And as we're waking up, as we're, as that, the, the suffering is the discomfort of us waking up. And so being a baby is not easy. Being a baby is um, terribly traumatic in so many different ways. And so this waking up is going to require some pausing, some reaching mm-hmm. beyond, some really, really terrifying moments. And this season is for you to, to take a step back and to remember that the divine is there. The divine aspects are within you and you can access them. Um, it's just going to take some time. It's going to take some work. It's going to take some presence. So anyways, Jay, thank you so much uh, for hopping on here and, and, and just joining this conversation. Do you have any parting words as people enter into uh, Christmas tomorrow? Yeah. Um, so let me work kind of from the outside in. You may find yourself with family tomorrow, which can be complicated. But what a beautiful space. First of all, to assert your own deep knowing that performing a righteousness for others isn't a burden that should be yours. And may you also know that you might have some small part in liberating a loved one from the same script. You know, so maybe around the tree or at the table, you might you might realize maybe for the first time that someone you love is trying desperately to live up to something that, that maybe you know on their behalf they don't actually have to. So maybe you can help a little bit with the kind of embrace that liberates them from that uh, one day at a time. More than ever in this very, very stressful season, may you know that trying to be invincible is completely understandable, but it's not actually how we become okay. And that whatever feels most vulnerable and scary, wherever that's located in your psyche or in your behavior, in your life patterns, um, maybe that's the place to, to go to, to become present to the presence of God and to open your heart to love and to stand in the center of your actual life as you actually are rather than the person that you've been desperately trying to be for others or for yourself and uh, as you do so uh, you might hear something in your heart a little bit like that little brother who heard uh, you are always with me and all i have is yours and everything is a gift and incarnation is here as a, as a reminder that God has always wanted to live God's life in our bodies. Mm-hmm.